Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now, I need to be real careful at the statement I'm about to make because I don't want to say anything political from the pulpit to be accused of promoting one candidate or another. So this is not anything political. This is just a commentary on something that happened this past week at a presidential candidate. Hillary Clinton has gotten into a lot of hot water lately for this whole issue of having two emails and a private email server when she served as Secretary of State of the United States, and many of you know her poll numbers have been tanking, and she's kind of scrambling uh, to, to get some support here and to try to figure out what's going on, and a lot of polls have labeled her as someone who's untrustworthy, someone who can't be trusted. And this past week, she issued somewhat of an apology on ABC News when she was being interviewed, and she said that she was sorry for having the personal email account, and she said it was a mistake. But then when pressed further about the issue, she never really came out and gave a full-blown apology. Really, it was more of, I'm sorry that you people did not understand what I was doing. It was more sorry for our miscommunication and not understanding what she was doing. And she's released over 55,000 pages of documents from her email server to the State Department. And she's being under investigation by FBI right now. And many people wonder if she's going to be indicted. We really don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to Hillary Clinton. We don't know if she's going to be the nominee. It's up for grabs. And so the the issue that I have is, did she actually show any remorse, any repentance, or any true confession of sin? And I'll let you be the judge of that as an American citizen. Last week, we saw the downfall of David and Bathsheba. If you remember, David committed more than just adultery, more than just murder. He coveted Uriah's wife. He stole her. He got Uriah drunk. He tried to cover it up. So if you look at everything that David did, he was a liar. He was a thief. He was a cheater. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a lustful man. And Nathan, the prophet, was sent by God to go to David and and point his finger in David's face and tell that parable and say, you are the man. And David did repent. David did confess sin. And last week in in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we, we saw the story and we saw David's confession. But it's not really until you get to Psalm 51 that you see the full confession of David before the Lord. So what I want to do this morning is we're still looking at the life of David, but instead of being in 2 Samuel 12, we are going to go to Psalm 51, which is actually the psalm that flows out of what we saw last week with David and Bathsheba. And what I want to do this morning is I want to help us understand what is true biblical confession and repentance of sin. What does it look like in the life of someone 
who is majorly sin. And it will help us to understand how we can confess and repent of sin. Now, there's a logical progression to how this psalm works itself out. And I do believe that there are stages and steps, but sometimes these are concurrent and happen at the same time. So it's not mechanical that there's step one, step two, step three. They all kind of work together. But what I want to show you this morning, there really, I think, are four stages. Four stages in this psalm of really what repentance and confession looks like. And so let's read together Psalm 51. And I want you to notice from the very beginning the little superscript that you should have above verse 1. There's a little uninspired superscript that your translators have put in there to give you the context of this psalm. And so it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We looked at that last week. So this is the psalm that flows out of what we saw last week. So let's read it together, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you may not stick with me. There's a lot of parts here, okay? So I tried to figure out if I was going to outline this, and I thought, just hang with me, and, and I'll do the best I can. There are four major stages of biblical repentance and confession that we see in this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to do my best to explain to you what these stages are, and then underneath these stages, there's some steps, okay? So I think there's a logical flow of how David actually does repentance and confession. So let's look at stage one in this biblical confession and repentance of sin. Here's stage one. The only way, before we even confess, the only way we can confess sin is because of God's merciful character. 
It starts with God's character before we even begin to confess. And that's what David does from the very beginning. You see it in verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He starts out with, God, you've got to show me mercy. You've got to show me steadfast love. And we looked at that word a few weeks ago. It's that Hebrew word, hesed, the steadfast tenacious, loyal love that God has for his children, that powerful love. It's it's what God revealed to Moses when Moses was in the cloud and God showed him his backside glory. In Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, this is one of the chief characteristics of God in the Old Testament, a God of mercy, a God of abounding, steadfast love. And that's what David does. He says, he says, God, the first thing I want to do is I want to appeal to your mercy because if I appeal to your justice, if I appeal to your fairness, what am I going to get? I'm going to get justice. And I don't want justice. You see, oftentimes we get these things out of balance as Christians we want to pit one attribute of God against another attribute. And we, we say that God is all love or God is all justice. And, and we don't really see these two come together. And so the one thing that we don't ever want to do as Christians is we don't want to appeal for God to be just. Because if God is just, what would he do? He would obliterate us off the map and send us all to hell in a heartbeat. And he has every right to do so. But we know that our God is merciful. Our God has steadfast love. And that's what David begins to do. He says, God, I come to you. And before I even confess my sin, I know that you are a merciful God. And he has blot out my transgressions. God, totally blot out my transgressions. There's his request there at the end of verse 1. Blot them out. Get rid of them. Totally wipe my transgressions away. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Praise the Lord that God blots them out. Now, David here is going to use three words for sin to show the magnitude of what he's done against God. Now, remember, last week we said there's a lot of things that David did. He committed adultery, he committed murder, he lied, he cheated, he stole, he got Uriah drunk, he had lust in his heart. There's a lot of sins. But David is going to use three particular Hebrew words here for sin to show the magnitude of really what he's done. And you see these English words, and I'll kind of explain to you what they mean in Hebrew. The first word he uses there is at the end of verse 1. He says, blot out my transgressions. Now, transgressions in the original language is, is this whole idea of stepping over a boundary of rebelling against God. It's this whole idea that you've turned your back on God, you've stepped across God's boundary, you've basically shook, shook your fist at God and say, I'm going my own way. I'm, I'm, I'm offending God. I'm trespassing against God. I'm going against God. That's what the word transgression means. I'm, I'm stepping over a boundary that God has laid. Now, the second word that David uses is the word iniquity. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This speaks more of David's character. It speaks more of perversion or being twisted or being perverted. This whole idea that we're corrupt to the core of our being, that, that what flows out of David's heart is this, this, this corruption, this, this twistedness. And then the third word he uses there is simply the word sin at the end of verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. 
you all are familiar with this term. It means to, to fall short or to miss the mark. It was often used of an archer that would shoot bow and arrows and he would totally miss the mark. God's got a target there and you're not even close to the target. So David has stepped across God's bounds. He's twisted in his heart and he's totally missed the mark. And so the very first thing that David does before he begins to specifically confess sin is he appeals to God's merciful character. And so that's stage one. It all starts with God and who God's character is. And we approach this merciful God who's ready to forgive. He's ready to receive us. He's merciful. He has steadfast love. And we come and we appeal to that mercy. That's stage one. But here's stage two in this process. We must actually confess our sin. You know what the word confess means? Homologia. To say the same word as, it really means to agree with God that what you've done is wrong. You're agreeing with God that what you've done is wrong. And what we see here, underneath this big category of stage two, if you're taking notes, okay, so stage two, we must confess sin. There are five aspects under this that that David shows us, five ways that we confess sin. He illustrates what it looks like, okay? First of all, in verse three, confession acknowledges your personal sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Notice what David does not do. He doesn't blame Uriah. He doesn't blame Bathsheba. He doesn't blame Nathan. He doesn't blame anybody else. He says, I'm guilty. I'm accountable. I'm going to confess my personal sin. I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to own up to it. There's a parallel psalm in Psalm 32.5. Some scholars believe that Psalm 32.5 was also at at the same time when David committed sin with Bathsheba. And this is what he says in Psalm 32.5. I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. I acknowledged my sin. I brought it out in the open. I confessed it specifically. I called it what it was. I didn't hide it. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You've got to confess the actual sin. You've got to call sin, sin. You've got to call it for what it is. And then number two under this category, in verse four we see this, confession understands that you've sinned against a holy God. Now it's interesting the wording that David uses. We may be a little confused by what he says in verse 4. Because what does he say in verse 4? He's talking to God here, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that doesn't make much sense because who did David sin against? Uriah, Uriah's parents, Bathsheba, Bathsheba's parents, the nation of Israel. There's many levels of whom David sinned against. But in David's mind, first and foremost, it's against who? God himself. Against you and you only have I sinned. So he's not downplaying sin. He's not withholding the confession. He's owning up to it and saying, God, let me be real, let me be real with you, God. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. Now, we looked at this last week. When Nathan came and confronted David and said, you're the man, Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, 
the Lord has put your, away your sin, you shall not die. Now here's what we need to think about. When you yell at your kids, you're sinning against God. Because God has made those kids in his image. When you are surfing internet at the night, looking at pornographic websites when your wife has gone to bed, you are sinning against God. Now, you're sinning against your wife, but first and foremost, you're sinning against God. When you gossip at work about a coworker, you're sinning against God. When you cheat on a test or you cheat on your homework or you cheat on your taxes, you're sinning first and foremost against God. Now, the ramifications may be that you're sinning against others, but first and foremost, we need to understand that ultimately sin is a sin against God himself, and that's what David says here. Against you and only you have I sinned. So he acknowledges it. He confesses it. He doesn't hide it. He knows that it's against a holy God. But here's the third, the third step under this one. Confession recognizes that God is absolutely just in punishing sin. Look at what he says there in verse 4, at the end of verse 4. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Basically, what David's saying is, God, you have every right. You have every right. And you are justified in punishing me. Remember last week, what did David deserve? Remember last week, what did David deserve? Death. He deserved the death penalty. Murder and adultery deserve death. And David realizes that I've been spared by God death, and God had every right to execute me on the spot. God is just. God is holy. God could execute justice, but he's chosen not to. But I'm going to acknowledge that God has every right to punish sin. He's a holy God. Fourth, you commit sin because you are a sinner by nature. Trick question. I asked this in a new member's class so they already know the answers. Are you a sinner because you sin or do you sin because you're a sinner? Some people are saying yes. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? You sin, you commit actual sins because it's in your nature to do so. The nature's what makes you sin. You sin because you have a sinful nature. What does David say there? Look at what David says there in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from conception, the moment that you're conceived, you inherit the sin from your parents that goes all the way back to Adam that you inherited. Every single one of us is born sinners. And the reason we commit sins is because we are sinners by nature. That's why you sin, is because you're a sinner by nature. It's called Radical corruption or total depravity, original sin. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay? So, so here's what confession looks like so far. Okay? So we own up to our sin. We confess it. We see how offensive it is to a holy God. We know that he has every right to punish us. And we know that sin comes from our nature first that causes us to actually commit outward sins, which leads us to really understand the true issue here. And this is, this is the, the, the last thing under this section. And we see it in verse 6. Confession knows that sin really stems from your heart. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
We sin because it comes out of our hearts. What does Jesus say about our hearts? Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 7, 20-23. Jesus said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So stage one, we appeal to God's mercy. Stage two, we actually confess the sin. We own up to the sin. We know it comes from our hearts and we confess it. We're honest with God. We're raw with God. We, we personally and specifically confess it. And then what's the promise from God? He forgives it. He forgives that sin. He cleanses us. 1 John 1.9 says this, faithful promise of Scripture, powerful promise of Scripture, bonafide offer from Scripture. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us some of our sins that we're really sorry for and cleanse us from some unrighteousness. Is that what the Bible says? Some of you are like, hey, he's misquoting it. I'm glad you thought that. Making sure you're awake. What does it say there? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us what? Our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does this happen? Through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-14 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So here's the promise we have. When we actually confess those sins, God actually forgives them. Amen. God doesn't say, hey, listen, you thought I was loving, you thought I was merciful, and and if you confess these, I might think about forgiving you. No, what does the Bible say? When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So if you're here this morning and you have major sin in your life, confess that to Jesus and believe the promise that He can cleanse you from all all those sins. It's a promise from Scripture. But here's the problem, and all of us have experienced this that have sinned. That's that's easy to wrap our minds around. Yes, I believe that God forgives me, but what about that closeness with God that I've lost? What about that intimacy with God that I've lost? Those times that I've sinned, I'm sure, and we see it from this text, that David, the man after God's own heart, once Nathan came to him and said, you're the man, and he confessed that sin, I'm sure he felt a distance with God. Have you ever felt that distance? Have you ever felt that gap where that sin kind of drew you away from that intimacy with God? And you know your sins are forgiven. You know that God has forgiven you, but you just want to be back to that place that you were before. And that's what David does here in stage three. The third stage. And it's what David prays for. We must pray for renewal and restoration. Yes, our sins are forgiven. Bonafide, 100%, wiped clean. But sometimes there's that lingering sense of distance. That sense where there's a lack of intimacy. That need in our heart to be restored and renewed to God. 
Not that, he's, not that we've lost our salvation or anything like that. It's just the intimacy. We see this in verses 7 through 12. It's interesting that the terminology that David uses there in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And some of you are thinking, what in the world is hyssop? Anybody know what hyssop is? Anybody been washed with hyssop? Is that your prayer? Jesus, wash me with hyssop. I don't think anybody prayed that this week. Did anybody pray? I don't think anybody prayed that this week. If you did, I want to see you after the service, because you're real spiritual, praying for hyssop cleaning. What in the world is hyssop? In the Old Testament... Two of the worst things that the worst things that you could touch and be totally undefiled was leprosy in a dead body. Leprosy in a dead body defiled you. And hyssop was a plant that was used to cleanse a person after they had touched a dead body or they had touched a leper. It was a special plant that was used. And so what David is saying here is listen. I am like a dead body. I am like a leper. I am the worst of sinners. I am unclean. I am worthy of death. I need you, God, to purge me, to cleanse me with this this hyssop, which was really used of the priest in the Holy of Holies when they went on that Day of Atonement. So this whole idea that, that David understands that he's the worst of sinners and he needs to be cleansed. He needs to be cleansed. You know, Paul felt that same way in 1 Timothy 1.15. What did Paul say? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Anybody here want to have the name worst of sinners? All of us would be at the front of the line because we know what's in our hearts. And David is like, listen, I'm a wretch. And my only hope is to be cleansed. And when God does that cleansing, when God does that renewal, he brings me back into that fellowship with him. And so David gives us four things to consider. Okay, so this is big ticket number three, praying for renewal and restoration. There's four issues to consider of what Jesus does in this restoration process, in this renewal process, okay? So we see this, the first of all, in verses eight and nine. Jesus fills our hearts with the joy of being forgiven. Look at verses 8 and 9. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Do you see the joy there? David's saying, man, listen, I have experienced pain. I've experienced the, the dark night of the soul. I have, I've wept tears. It's almost feel like my bones have crushed inside. And God, I know that you've forgiven me, but I need to feel it. I need to have that joy restored to me. And so David says, listen, I need joy to fill my heart. And that's what Jesus does. He fills us with joy. He lets us know that we've been forgiven. And that leads to joy. See, here's a lot of times, here's where forgiveness and repentance stays unhealthy. You can focus so much on your sin and you can stay there that you never move on to joy. Should you own up to your sin? Yes. Should you confess your sin? Yes. Should you be serious about your sin? Yes. But if you stay there and you wallow in that, you are not believing the gospel. Because what the gospel says is that your sin is forgiven and Christ gives you joy. And I think a lot of Christians stay over here. Woe is me. I'm not sure if God forgives me. I'm wallowing in my sin. Yes, you need to do that for a period. But it needs to lead to joy. The joy of your salvation being restored to you. Because the reality is, You've been forgiven. Live in the joy of that. And Jesus does that. And he also does more than that. What else does Jesus do? Jesus does more than just cancel our sin, which is awesome as it is. He actually powerfully creates within us a new heart. Look at verse 10. 
Do you see the, the, the creation language used here? Create in me, what? A clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know what happens to you when you become a Christian? You become a new creation. 2, Timothy 5, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now that's true for every single person who's a Christian. You're a new creation. But there's those times in our lives where we don't really fully understand that. And we need to have God come and create in us that clean heart, that new heart. And so Jesus does that. He does that inward change. Not only does he just wipe your sins away forensically, legally, righteously, but there's that internal change that comes when we know that he's flooded our hearts with forgiveness internally. And not only that, look at verse 11. Jesus grants us an awareness of God's indwelling presence. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now we can get a whole debate here, a whole Old, Old Testament debate. Could the Holy Spirit be taken away from David? We're not going to answer that question because it really doesn't matter because we are New Testament, post-Pentecost, and what does the rest of the New Testament say? If you're truly a Christian, does the Holy Spirit leave you? No, he will never leave and forsake you. So you can't have the Holy Spirit cast from your presence. What David's praying for here is, I just want a renewed sense of your presence. Now, now theological question here. Is God everywhere present at all times? Yes, okay. Are you awake out there? Yes. Are there times when God's presence is felt closer? Yes. It's called the manifest presence of God. Yes, God is everywhere present at all times, but there are those times in our lives where because of our sins, we don't experience the felt or the manifest presence of God the way we should, and that's what David's praying for. I, I want to I experience the felt presence of God. God, I know you're everywhere, but my sin has separated me from you, and I want the joy of my salvation renewed to me. I want to know your presence in my life. I want to know that you are near. And notice what else Jesus does in verse 12. Jesus restores in us a love for his gospel as the motivation for us to not sin again. Do you see that in verse 12? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. A willing spirit to do what? To not sin again. What's your motivation for not sinning again? Your motivation for not sinning again is the beauty of the gospel. And here's the problem that a lot of Christians get into. They have this mantra, and you guys have heard me say this mantra all the time. Here's the mantra that most Christians may live by. I love sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a great relationship. Let me just live the way I want to live. No. The motivation for you not to sin is because God loves forgiving. But it's not so that you can keep on sinning. There's joy in the gospel. And so we need to daily remind ourselves that, listen, we are new creations in Christ. And as a matter of fact, God gave a promise in the Old Testament of what he would do in the New Testament that's true for every single Christian here this morning. Listen to what Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says. This has happened to you if you're a Christian. Praise the Lord. God says, I will give you a new heart. 
and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you no longer have a heart of stone. You have a heart of flesh that the Holy Spirit has put in you. And what does he do? He causes you. He moves you. He enables you to walk in holiness. The power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit in you to do that. And we can obey because of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the, four, the, the, the three stages so far that we've looked at, okay? Stage one, we appeal to God's mercy. The only way we can be forgiven, the only way we can confess is because God is a merciful God ready to do that. Number two, we actually got to confess sin. We've got to confess it. We've got to own up to it. We've got to be real. We've got to acknowledge it. We can't hide it. We've got to confess it. And then number three, we've got to ask Jesus to restore the joy of my salvation, restore that intimacy, restore and refresh me and renew me. But that is not enough. That's not all. That's confession. But there's one final step. Stage four, we must actually repent. There's a huge difference between confession and repentance. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Confession says, I'm sorry, I did it. I weep over the fact that I did it. But then you go out and you keep doing it again and again. Confession and repentance says, I'm sorry that I did it. I weep over I did it. And then I don't do it again. I've turned from that sin and I'm demonstrating a life of fruit that says i've turned from that sin now let's look at these stages or this last stage verse 13 repentance comes in a verbal testimony to others about god's grace what does david do in verse 13 then i will tell i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you that's interesting because of the, the grace that, and forgiveness that David's experienced, he's going to go tell other people about it. Here's what happens when God has forgiven you. It's not a private thing. It leads to outward action. It leads to change. It leads to verbal testimony. You are telling people how God has changed you, and it's demonstrated by a life of repentance. Charles Spurgeon once said this, Our repentance should be just as notorious as our sin. Which means What? A lot of people can talk about your sin and it can be way out there and people are talking about it, but your repentance needs to be what people talk about, the thing that people see, that outward change. Secondly, repentance means that we don't hide out as loners in isolation, but that we make ourselves accountable to others. Now, where do we see this? We see this in verses 14 and 15 because what David is going to do is he's, he's talking about joining himself in corporate worship with the nation of Israel to make himself accountable in worship. He says in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He's talking about singing aloud in church. He's talking about singing aloud in the temple worship along with the congregation. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's this whole idea that David knows that, remember last week, those of you that were here, what was the issue with David? In the time that the kings go off to war, he stayed back and he did not hold himself accountable. He was alone, he was by himself. He did not surround himself with accountability and that's why he sinned. 
But here David's saying, listen, I've experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go into corporate worship. I'm going to go be among God's people. I'm going to sing. I'm going to worship. I'm going to praise. I'm going to make myself accountable. I'm not going to live in isolation. I'm not going to isolate myself anymore. I'm going to gather myself in around those that are going to hold me accountable, those that are going to encourage me, those that are going to help me not sin. And probably the main reason that you sin in the first place is because you lived in isolation and you weren't accountable and you were influenced by the world. The third thing we see here is that we need to realize that even though we're commanded to repent, we can't earn this forgiveness by our repentance. It's not like the more we repent, God is obligated to forgive us. Repentance is a gift of God. What's the one thing you bring to the table in this whole thing? The more tears you cry, the more God's obligated to save you. That sounds like works-based righteousness. The more, that you, the more that you do something for God, the more he's obligated to forgive you. What does David say there in verse 16? You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Okay, if I could bring a sacrifice, God, if I could, if I could just bring more bulls, more goats, something to, to please you, God, I would bring it, because I'm David. I've got the resources. I would bring it. If you wanted it, I would bring it. But you're not going to be pleased with the burnt offering. What are you going to be pleased with, God? Look at what he says in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here's something that you can take home with you. God will never despise a broken heart. If you come to him brokenhearted, truly broken over your sin, and you confess it, and you own up to it, and you plead with him, and you, and you beg for his mercy. He comes to you with the grace and mercy, and he forgives your sins, and he blots out your transgressions, and he says, he says the only thing that you come is a broken person, and I can fix you, I can forgive you, I can cleanse you. Now that's the process. Four stages in the process. Number one, we have to acknowledge that we come before a merciful God who's ready to forgive us. We appeal to his mercy. Stage two, we've got to actually confess it. We've got to be serious. We've got to be real. We've got to be specific. We've got to confess sin. We've got to own up to it. Number three, we've got to pray for that intimacy, that restoration, the joy of our salvation, the, the new heart being created with us. And then fourthly, we've actually got to repent. We've got to change. We've got to do an about face. We've got to do a 180 degree turn. We've got to have a, a changed life. But then, all of a sudden, you got verses 18 and 19 in this psalm that make almost no sense. Up to this point, David has been very personal, very raw, I've sinned. But then you've got verses 18 and 19 stuck in there, and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, let's read this and find out what what it means. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. What's David talking about here? Here's what he's talking about. And we don't understand this in our 21st century privatized Christian consumeristic mindset. Here's what David knows. David knows that what happens in Jerusalem does not stay in Jerusalem. He understands that as king, his actions affect the entire nation. His sin is not in a vacuum. His sin is not off in a corner. As king, as representative of the entire nation, his sin affects the entire nation. And what he's praying for here is, don't let my sin be the downfall of Jerusalem. 
Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Let Jerusalem not suffer because of my sin. Lord, I realize that my sin is bigger than just me. It affects the entire body. And here's the principle for us in the New Testament. Your sin is not in a vacuum. Your sin is not privatized. When you sin, it affects the entire church. It's not just done in a vacuum. Now, you may not be the king or you may not be the key leader, but as part of a body of Christ, your actions affect the entire body. And sometimes in our 21st century privatized Christianity, we think what I do over here privately has no effect on anybody else. And Paul would address that. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, you remember what was happening in 1 Corinthians. There was an incestuous relationship going on in the church, and the the church was not doing anything about it. They were arrogant. And Paul says, listen, you've got to deal with this. You've got to stop it. And you've got to exercise church discipline. And here's the illustration that he uses. You guys know what yeast is? Or leaven? What's yeast or leaven? What does it do? It makes bread raise. Some of you are like listening. All right, good. So if it's good yeast, what does it do? It permeates the whole batch. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven or a little yeast leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What's Paul's point? A little sin over here and a little sin over here and a little sin over here in the church if not dealt with becomes big sin all over the place. It permeates. It spreads. And that's David's prayer here. David's like, I've sinned majorly. As the leader of this nation, I have sinned. And my sin is not a private thing. It's a public thing. And so God, please build up the walls of Jerusalem. Do not let the city of Jerusalem fall because of my sin. I understand that my sin's not in a vacuum. And we need to understand the same thing. So what are the four stages? We acknowledge the mercy of God. Number two, we actually confess it. We, we get real and we confess the sin. Third stage, we pray for that restoration. We pray for that renewal. Re- create in me a clean heart. Restore the joy of my salvation. And then number four, we actually repent. We repent of our sins. And then I would probably add a fifth here, but I didn't do it in the, in the outline. Fifth would be your sin impacts the entire congregation. It's not just a private thing. So how do you end a message like this? Well, you give opportunity for God's people to practice what's just been preached. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and I want to give you some extended time this morning to actually confess and repent and to come clean and to worship the Lord this morning. If you have any sins in your heart, now is your opportunity to confess those and to repent and to come before the Lord, begging for His mercy, knowing that He's faithful to forgive. And so would you spend some extended time this morning going through these stages in the process of practicing biblical confession and repentance? Come before you this morning. And the first thing we want to do, Lord, is to appeal to Your mercy. We want to acknowledge that you are a merciful and gracious God. That your mercy is new every morning. That your steadfast love lasts forever. Father, you have every right to 
not show us mercy, but in your infinite goodness and kindness, you show us mercy through Jesus. So we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning in his blood, trusting in your mercy. And Father, we confess specific sins of our hearts this morning, and Lord, we know that it's deep in our hearts that these sins come from. So Lord, would you search our hearts? Would you go deep into our hearts? Would you see if there's any offensive way deep in our hearts, Lord? Maybe there's pride. Maybe there's lust. Maybe there's selfishness. Maybe there's greed. Lord, whatever's deep in our hearts, would you take that Holy Spirit searchlight and go deep into our hearts and search us? And Lord, once we've experienced the the, the forgiveness of sin, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you renew that right spirit within us? Would you draw us near? Would, Would you help us to know your presence this morning? And we claim the promise that if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And Lord, we also pray for repentance. We walk out of this place changed and, and we would actually walk in newness of life, that we would not go back to those old habits. That we would not go back to those old lusts and those old patterns. But that we would truly walk in repentance. And we know, Lord, that our sin is not in a vacuum, but it affects others. It affects our family. It affects our, our workplace. It affects our team, it affects our job, it affects the church family. So we claim the promise this morning, Jesus, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, there may be some in this room this morning that for the very first time in their life, they, they're doing this. They've never, they've never done this before. And you've brought conviction to their heart this morning that they're a sinner and their only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ and to confess that sin. And I pray that today would be their day of salvation. That, Lord, you would draw sinners to yourself for the very first time and save those that are lost for your glory. So, Lord, help us to be a people that repent, a people that confess, and that we're quick to do it. Help us to do that for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.